0: 47. The number of people who will have held the office of New York City Comptroller once Brad Lander is sworn in on January 1st, 2022. The City Comptroller is important to the city's fiscal health, governmental integrity, efficiency, and accountability. The controller has many functions, including auditing city agencies, ensuring the integrity of the contracting process, being custodian, administrator, and investment advisor for the $250 billion in assets held by the five New York City pension funds, and being a budget watchdog who makes recommendations to promote the city's fiscal health. With the city at this critical juncture, a strong controller is especially crucial. The city has budget gaps that are roughly $5 billion annually for the next three years and has already allocated $15 billion in federal COVID aid, which should be spent wisely to help New York recover and help our young people reverse the impact of learning lost during the pandemic. I sat down yesterday for a fireside chat with Brad Lander, New York City's Comptroller-Elect. Our wide-ranging conversation covered everything from how a progressive should be an excellent budget watchdog to his perspective on Mayor-elect Adams' planned budget savings, to how he plans to push for contracting and procurement reforms. To watch a video of the fireside chat, please visit our website cbcny.org. And of course, be sure to tune in soon to our next episode of What's the Data Point. Back with our co-host Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Take care. First of all, I didn't say in my introduction that You win the award for the geekiest answer during the Controller (laughs) Candidate Forum on your favorite
1: um, fiscal hero being the controller. Is it Andrew Haswell Green who was the controller? Andrew Haswell Green was a 19th century controller uh, and the father of consolidation. He brought the five boroughs together. It was his vision. There's a novel uh, about his murder, uh, which is called The Great Mistake, uh, which is what Brooklynites, some of us, still call consolidation. uh, but he was killed in a, in a case of mistaken identity, uh, and I highly recommend reading it. But, uh, yeah, Andrew Haswell Green, without doubt, the most consequential controller in the history of New York City.
0: So there you, there you go. That's a man who studies for the office when he studies about the office. <laughs> so we at CBC, you know, know the importance of the office, and we think about, you know, audits and pension investments and, and judgments and claims and debt issuance. And I'm sure in your third grade class when the teacher went around <laughs> and said, you know, Susie wants to be a rocket science, or Raul wants to be a rock and roll star, and you said New York City controller. Control. Yeah. Exactly. So thank you, thank you very much. Um, but we value the office so much and you've studied for it. I'd love to start off um, with you telling us what's the one thing, if you could pick one thing that you're most excited about as you
1: start the office. I mean, obviously, the thing I'm most excited about is the working relationship with the Citizens Budget Commission. <laughs> uh, the mayor-elect loves nightclubs, and I love breakfast conversations about fiscal discipline. I mean, what what could be better? So, uh, and actually, I know it might sound like I'm I'm pandering, but I brought data, like I have evidence of the fact that I'm excited about this. First of all, uh, uh, thank you, Bill Thompson, for that uh, beautiful introduction, and for serving on the transition committee, which met yesterday, and there's several members in the room. Andrew is one of those members, and it's co chaired by your past president, Carol Kellerman, who is here. Um, And Carol's co chair is Mark Winston Griffith, who leads the Brooklyn Movement Center, a central Brooklyn organization focused on racial and and social justice issues. And I really, you know, the idea there, and and I talked a lot about uh, this with both of them, you know, there's an idea that competent, effective government and bold progressive government are in some tension with each other. Certainly that's the tenor of a lot of our politics these days, and I would just say to you, I really believe it's not that they are mutually exclusive, it's that they're mutually essential, like we must have Both of them, progressives like me, have a very clear obligation to put more time and energy into the capacity of government to genuinely deliver on its promises, to live within its means, to tell the truth about what's going on because it cannot deliver on any of the things we want uh, if it doesn't do those things. And it's why I really am excited about the CBC relationship. Um, It's also true though that for the era that we're facing, if we don't build a government that is up to the task of the climate crisis that can do better on inequality. We also have no chance of succeeding in our long-term goals when Jamie Dimon is calling inequality a systemic risk, when Larry Fink is writing letters that say we all have to move more aggressively on the climate crisis, you can really see that. So I just think those two things uh, have to go together, and I'm excited about this relationship to do so. And and one more point of data on how excited I am for the CBC relationship. Um, We actually, at the end of the campaign, Uh, put out a survey modeled on something that CBC did in 2017 uh, and the Bloomberg administration in partnership I think with CBC did for the first time in 2008 which is a survey of, of government services and neighborhood quality of life that really tries to get at some of the core and basic questions. We're busy analyzing the data uh, right now, we'll have some things out soon, but i just give you one top line. Um, when we ask people about public safety and neighborhood public safety uh, across neighborhoods, um, though we're still doing some of the waiting, um, issues of homelessness are at the top of the list. Um, and you know, what a um, clear way of saying, all right, how do we invest thoughtfully in the things that both keep people safe and house them, and how do we do that effectively? So, so anyway, I, I stand by it. Like, the thing I'm most excited about this morning uh, is a long and deep relationship with, with all of you and the ways we deliver a city that can uh, deliver effective government for all of us and carry us forward to confront some of the big challenges we face. Well, thanks. That's I think even wonkier than the Andrew Haswell Green answer. Well, you I know, know that, that's fine. Happens um, to be true. If
0: so. if if, um, <laughs> if we weren't wonky people, we'd probably be at some other breakfast. Um, I don't know. What Still to
1: say sleeping about. off the nightclub.
0: Maybe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, hold on. The mayor has said he, he he goes out at night, wakes up at five. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've I, seen I, him early. So I, I, that I've, is. True. He's an early riser. So let's go. Let's delve a little deeper into the specifics of the government watchdog role. You know, we see on paper. The $4 billion budget gap, we know that they're $5 billion because the labor savings yep. isn't real. Um, there's no plan for it. We know that you know, spending, your the predecessor, current control, I don't know, I'll look to build it. Scott, our good friend, you know, between the markets and investments have done well, so we'll have a little lower spending, maybe revenues are higher, but we also have labor contracts to sign yep. that'll be upward pressure on costs. So we're looking at $5 billion budget gaps um, as far as the financial plan I can, can see. Um, Let's delve into a little deeper, because what do you think is the biggest risk to the city's fiscal health?
1: Hmm. Well, I want to talk about the fiscal risks and how we address that $4 to $5 billion out-year gap, how we make sure that we aren't spending the American Rescue Plan in federal dollars in ways that create recurring expenses after that money ends. Um, I think there's some important conversations to have about the debt limit in an era of a need to spend more on infrastructure. So we can come back to each of those things. If the question, though, is, like, what's the biggest uh, risk for the city's fiscal health? It's restoring its economic health. So, uh, you know, let's talk about the budget for sure, but if we have to do one thing top line, it's make sure the city's economy comes back strong. Um, There's a lot of things beyond the city's control in that, obviously, but there are a lot of things that aren't, and so I thought the recent CBC report on getting the basics right um, is really the thing that we need to focus on. Like, people didn't come to New York to create a new business because they were excited about a midtown corporate office building. Uh, They came because the city is a great place to create and live and raise a family and celebrate and go out at night. And the basics are what are essential there. So like making sure that we keep, you know, there's a lot of conversations about rats right now and about (laughs) trash when you talk about the basics, like keeping... Uh, the trash getting picked up and the neighborhood's cleaner and the streets safe and the schools in good shape, that's what'll we'll make sure, along with a thriving cultural uh, scene, that people keep coming here to create. so I just uh, that's where to start. It's like what can we do with those federal dollars, with the infrastructure money uh, to invest in the things that make the city have, be a strong platform for future economic growth? That doesn't solve all these other things we should come back to and talk about, right, but, but thing one is making sure the economy is thriving
0: true getting the basics right so thanks for uh, reading that read Not, that
1: report you, if you, you haven't already you can see the
0: short version on your chair <laughs> so thanks and thanks to the daily news for publishing that but so a fiscal conservative or fiscal prudent you know watchdog like ourselves might look at the founder of the of the the um, progressive caucus in the council and say hold on will you call out fiscal profligacy? Will you say there are savings to be had, but we need to reduce the workforce or change compensation with you know, some of your constituents who you're close to for many years? What, specific, what do you say in response to that more specifically, and what will you do when those issues come up? For example, the, the mayor has called for a 3 to 5% peg. Are you in favor of that going into this next plan, and and what do you think the guardrail should be?
1: Yeah, so um, let me answer this. So a couple of specifics about things I think we should do, and then maybe the the broader question as well. Uh, So yes, we absolutely need to restore a PEG program. I'm glad the mayor-elect is planning it. Um, One thing I think that's important about it that was done, I think, in the Bloomberg administration but not since – um, is making sure that the uh, healthcare and retirement costs associated with positions are factored into PEG analysis. Right now, the way we budget, all that's in your agency budget is salary. Uh, healthcare and pension benefits all sit together, um, and you're looking at how you reduce your agency budget. So there's neither credit to you for uh, attrition or position reductions that actually reduce um, pension obligations and healthcare spending. Um, you know, neither credit nor debit to you. So that's one thing we ought to fix about the PEG program is that you can tell the difference between an expense cut to an agency that's cut a contractor or managed some other expenses and one that is headcount reduction that actually uh, balances broader broader long-term obligations. So one good example, and definitely, and and the other, and, you know, we've been working on this together, thinking about American Rescue Plan spending, um, still a very substantial chunk of the federal dollars for education, and the discretionary spending has not been allocated or spent. There's been very little transparency about what has happened with the resources so far, uh, uh, which of those are recurring and which aren't. I know you guys are doing some analysis of this, but I think obviously a critical thing to do very early in the new year as we start to face the FY23 budget is get that data out and make sure that the remaining money is spent prudently, probably spent spread over a longer period of time with a clearer eye on outcomes and with a real thoughtful approach to what things we could be doing with that resource that put us in a better fiscal position in the long term. Do you have
0: specific plans as you take office in that regard um, on the American Rescue Plan and other federal money for transparency and other transparency plans? I know, I also want to say, Ronnie, I see Ronnie and George here from the Independent Budget Office. I know they're doing some work on that. But what specifically are you going to do yeah. when you approach office, and how can we work together
1: on yeah. this? Yeah, so uh, as you, uh, we, you know, there, I'm happy about the ways we already are. First of all, I'll say that uh, CBC alumna Maria Doulis created a pretty good state tracking system for state rescue plan money. In the state controller's office, um, I'm absolutely committed to do something like that as a 100 days project in the controller's office to make sure we have really clear tracking on federal rescue plan spending. I know you guys are working on some pieces of that, and yes, uh, Ronnie and her team and George at the IBO are doing that, so we'll make sure we're, not, we're adding value. Um, that's not easy to do, given a lot of what's been reported. You know, when there aren't outcomes measures on whether the spending, you know, there's only so much you can track. But this is absolutely critical and I think the focus I really wanna to bring to it is to set up the priorities and choices that, that Mayor Adams will have in his first budgets. Like what have we done so far, what's left, and what are the critical decisions to make in next year's budget about how that money gets spent. Um, the other thing like this I'm really eager to dig in on is the federal infrastructure money. Um, we do not have, not only do we not have a clear strategic plan for infrastructure investments, we really in New York City don't have a very thoughtful process for prioritizing what infrastructure makes sense to invest in and then tracking those investments through to spending. So um, there's a great memo that uh, just got sent. Jamie Springer, uh, who is the outgoing DDC commissioner, headed up to work with Jana Libre at the MTA uh, has put forward a really thoughtful set of recommendations for how the city can do better on capital projects management, alternative delivery systems to keep building on, uh, design build. But we also need a, just a more thoughtful strategic approach for where those resources, the city resources, obviously critical set of questions for the MTA Um, and regional transit. Um, But look, a lot of that money is for roads and bridges, um, and we need plenty of roads and bridge work, but obviously at the moment, we need to be paying attention to our sewer and water infrastructure. So what are the opportunities to maximize um, road repair and sewer infrastructure work in the most strategic way possible, and then drive those projects forward as efficiently as we can? Lots of challenges in our procurement system. So on both ARP spending and infrastructure spending, we're committed to really helping Make the choices clear. The choices obviously got to get made by the mayor, the agencies, and the council. Um, but working together, we can. But t- that, yeah, that's
0: that exactly that's exactly the rub. That's the interesting thing about you know being the chief accountability officer and having a, both tools of the office and a bully pulpit. But how can you leverage those tools, that pulpit, to affect it? So, have you formulated any plans? And I know. We got you in before you've assumed office, so I can't talk about your track record as controller thus far, but you're formulating those plans. What do you think, as controller, you can do to make sure that we have better integrated capital planning, better allocation, and then better execution?
1: Yeah. Um, nothing I'm going to get more excited about than talking about procurement uh, before, before 9 in the morning, which is great. Um, yeah. Um, so well, this is true in general. Obviously, a challenge, a structural challenge of the office is... On the one hand, you're an independent elected official, elected separately from the mayor, with an oversight responsibility that builds in um, a certain productive or creative tension. On the other hand, the only chance for the audits to actually implement, you know, the recommendations in the audits to be implemented or the ideas about improving procurement to work together, or if you really build a partnership in which it's possible. So um, Eric and I have sat down a couple of times and talked about this. You, you probably saw him say out in public he wants a controller who's going to audit the hell out of his agencies, um, You know, to which I said, like, of course we're going to do that. Let's think about how we work together on implementation of what the re- recommendations are and think of that as an opportunity to improve performance uh, for the city of New York not as something to like get headlines about or fight in the media, but pick things we all know need to get better and drill in on them. Procurement is really one of those things. and That's a good one because there's like, not really anyone on the other side. This is not an ideological debate. Is it good for the city procurement process to take years for more than half the contracts to arrive at the controller for registration long after their start dates for it to take a year year and a half for our nonprofits to get paid doesn't work for our nonprofit human service providers doesn't work for our MWBEs lengthens the time and cost of our capital projects and with no benefit basically like this so so that's an accreted prob- set of problems that have built up over a long period of time some of those things for good reasons people put a check and balance in and then it got stuck there they said you know what let's create a mayor's office of contracts to help streamline Uh, procurement but then that becomes one more stop along the way so we are building a team that is looking at how we can I think it's no secret that the relationship between the controller and the mayor on contracting and procurement over the last few years has been one of tension Um, we're trying to think about what a reset looks like that meets our obligations to check contracts for responsibility determinations and whether the money's in the bank to pay them uh, but that leans a little more into how can we get them registered on time and that how do we team up to strengthen and train ACOS in city agencies so they can be moving things forward? How do we use fully lean into Passport and into the new capital projects tracking so, uh, system that's set up pursuant to legislation I passed so we're all seeing those things? And with Passport and with that capital projects tracking, we ought to be able to identify um, where the delays are in the system and drill in together. So, you know, what I'll offer is uh, a spirit of collaboration and partnership to the administration, um, but the sort of other side of which has to be real commitment to working together at the Procurement Policy Board and throughout these systems to bring more transparency and then drill down on fixing bottlenecks, not just between the administration and the controller, but all along the way. And of course, most of that process is on the administrative side. Um, we're gonna be starting on that soon, and I don't wanna get out over my, my skis here, but a few of you who are nonprofit human service providers in the room know that we have been talking to a lot of you about how we could reduce the very long and painful delays you are, pay, uh, are experiencing. Uh, I've talked to the mayor-elect about it, and we are thinking about how we might lean in together to make that one of the early things we focus on and Work to solve.
0: It's interesting. Um I think this is, Alaire. I'll just cite you again. Alaire said when I was, she was part of the search committee, I me mean, getting the job and she said, if you can fix procurement, I think you said it's the Lord's work or something like <laughs> like, like that. So it's, it's great to, you know, we did some work on it. One of the challenges, of course, is the data aren't there to figure out what the delays are and where, where they are. And then when you talk to the administration, it's passport, 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 but it's not gonna be transparent, you know, to the outside. Is that something that you would advocate to be transparent and maybe audit and go beyond those timeframes? Because I know from implementing system when I was in government, it's before the system ever happens that the delays, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes a year while people are doing whatever they're doing in the formulation that it hasn't even hit the system. Absolutely. How can we make sure, and using the of your office, that it is transparent, that we know that, and that you can... Um, reveal to the public what the delays really are.
1: So this is a great point of leverage, actually. Passport was built. So Passport for folks, how many people know what Passport is? Let's actually, all right, so that's less than half. Um, uh, hey, that
0: was pretty good. I'm, just, know, saying. No, I'm just saying. No, no, great. I just mean it's us <laughs> up here as though
1: people know what worked. uh, uh Passport is the city's new uh, digital contracting processing system. Until now, basically, like it is really just being implemented, it remained like literally a paper system. Your contract was in a file folder, maybe somewhere at the agency and their checks, or maybe heading over to... Uh, Mayor's Office of Contract Services, MOCS, or the Law Department, or OMB, and then eventually to the controller for registration, and when you weren't sure where it was, you know, you needed someone to find it for you, it's taken us this long. Things got, uh, on the human service side, uh, there was an interim system, HHS Accelerator, but now city procurement moves through this passport system, it's a digital system, so it is possible to know where the contracts are. Uh, it was built so that the controller could register contracts within the that system, but that has not happened yet. Partly as a result of some of those tensions I mentioned, um, and that is an opportunity for. I'd love to get to the point where we can come into that system in the controller's office and register our contracts and passport. But there's going to have to be some things that are true about it, and one of those things is it's going to have to become uh, a system that provides meaningful information to the public. Um, obviously, not every piece of it, but what the elements are that can be public. What the you know what the controller is seeing. Um, and then with a commitment to publish that data uh, and then be a team on, as we start to understand as a result of that data gets published, where the problems are, which agencies are slower and what's going on in there, um, you know, which oversight agencies are experiencing the longest delays. The controller's on a clock. When the controller's office gets the contract, you have to either register it or send it back to the agency within 30 days, but nobody else in the system is on a clock. Um, Passport will at least bring transparency to it so long as we make it real.
0: And just speaking on the registration process and some of the tensions you mentioned, um, would you ever reject contracts to be registered on grounds other than the, um, you know, funds availability or or the process itself? Well,
1: you know, the charter is pretty clear that the reasons a controller can reject a contract are narrow. They are the responsibility determination. Are we, you know, has the work been done to ensure that that contractor uh, meets their responsibility obligations and doesn't have a series of conflicts? Um, And are the funds available to pay for it? Is it a properly registered contract? So those are the reasons you can reject a contract, and those are the only reasons we would reject it. When other issues are raised, there's other things to do with it. Like I think there's some room to strengthen post-registration contract auditing so that it's not the New York Times discovering uh, malfeasance on the homeless service contracts. Um, but that's a post-registration audit that your team can also dig in on. Um, so I think there's some ways to uh, improve the system. And actually, there are probably places to bring Uh, changes to the Procurement Policy Board, actually what those Bronx contracts revealed is that there's some weaknesses in our system around third-party vendors and family uh, and other um, corruption relationships where right now there's too much room if you get a big contract for like a, a homeless shelter contract to set up one of your family members or cronies in one of the vending relationships that you'll then have to hire somebody who does your food service or your cleaning. Um, And that's a place where we need stronger procurement policy board rules. So you couldn't reject a contract for those reasons today, even if you were concerned it was gonna take place, but you could go to the PPB. And say let's close that loophole, and right, right. then that would be a. So you'll add reason. the crony field to the database. I mean, it seems like it should be in there, doesn't it?
0: Um, no, no. I, I, I appreciate that. I'll also, before moving on, put in a plug for transparency in contracts. You know, anybody outside who's trying to look and, and look through PDFs and not have contracts as data um, would say. So I'll, I'll put in a plug from CBC on that. Before moving on. I
1: was told I was going to be excited though to see the log book. Apparently they still have in the controller's office like the old log book of the contracts. So I don't you know if you come th- see
0: there, it. There's, there's many things you will discover in the controller's office. Anybody who's been to a large organization, frankly it's public or private, starts to reveal things that are uh, time shocking. You never know. But we always try to improve over our predecessors and they've built and we stand on their shoulders.
1: And we'll be working as well on the post-register, especially for capital projects. There has not been a good transparent way, once they're registered, to see how they are moving along toward project completion. So I passed a law about a year ago requiring the city to create a citywide capital projects tracking database. Um, it turns out they had tried to do this like in the 1970s and created these things. Probably some people in the room created the Schroeder Report in, uh, in FMS, the city's financial management system, but it, they'd just been leaving the fields blank for many years. So we're, we're rebooting that um, and trying to get more integrated system where agency-level project management and oversight of capital projects can be tracked transparently across projects. Obviously, that's good for the public, but we really needed to make that system move faster as well as we're getting this federal infrastructure money. If we can get it out on the ground quickly, then of course it'll be a great opportunity for economic recovery and growth. If it takes many, many years for those projects to actually be hitting the street and creating jobs, then um, Before less.
0: moving off budget, if I can just, since we work together on this, I just wanna talk about the Rainy Day Fund um, that we've talked when you were in the, as you were in the council. Yeah. Um, about the Rainy Day Fund that we should strengthen what was put in, in state law and have mandatory deposits and um, withdrawal constraints that aren't in the state law. Um, do you still support that, and how, how can the controller help to promote a city law that actually um, codifies the Rainy Day Fund in a, in a stronger way?
1: Yeah, I do definitely still support, you know, that state law, you got a state law passed that is a good start, but that does need some adjustments if it's really going to, for now, you can still do a too wide a reason for withdrawals. Um, I'd love to see it tightened at the state level. I'd love to see a city law that makes clear both on the deposit side and on the withdrawal side. I will say, though, I would just take the mayor and the council setting up a clear policy at, rather than having annual negotiations resolved in the middle of the night, the last night before the budget is adopted. Um, What we need is some agreed on clarity that the mayor and the council agree with the influence of the controller and CBC and others. Here's what we're trying to get. This is how much we wanna have in our rainy day fund. Here's how we make deposits each year. How does that relate to the other places in the budget where there are reserve-like pools? And let's not do it the night before the budget passes, so it sounds like $500 million is great because it wasn't in there before, but compare it to a long-term set of targets and policy. Be great to have that in city law, be great to have it in state law. For this year, I'll take just, let's just have it. So that's gonna be my push, is sort of saying, let's take the CBC guidance, some of the things that were in Tom DiNapoli's recent report, uh, and just try to insist, well before we get to the budget adoption in late June, um, that we want to see either in the preliminary budget or the executive budget, a commitment to these long-term policies.
0: We welcome that and look forward to working with you. Um, before opening up for questions, one last piece. Um, this bridges your current and, and future life. Since you had a um, victory on Gowanus rezoning, but it was a great case example for something that was, took a long time, a little painful, um, cost the city a lot of money investment. We think there are other ways to support NYCHA, but there's money in there for NYCHA that you worked hard to get. Um, So let's talk a little about land use decision making and property tax reform, because we know we've done work on housing production, property tax reform. We're working on land use decision. We can fix these things. We can create jobs and housing, jobs and housing. And right now, it seems like we're in this period of, tough negotiations, stagnation. Stagnation is terrible for New York. We need dynamism. What lessons can we learn from the Guanos rezoning that can help us going forward, so we can balance neighborhood and citywide needs and create those jobs and housing?
1: Yeah. Uh, first, I want to thank some people in the room who are active with the Gowanus Canal Conservancy and some others like Carol Rosenthal and others who really played a really strong role in helping the Gowanus rezoning get across the finish line. I feel really proud of it. Probably that many, many of you didn't even hear that much about it. It is the largest rezoning of the de Blasio administration. It is the first MIH neighborhood rezoning in a whiter, wealthier neighborhood. Gowanus is the place in between Park Slope and Carroll Gardens. Um and yet it had much less uh, tension and fighting and opposition and noise. You know, last week when it was voted out of committee, um, the blood center on the Upper East Side, which is maybe 1 100th the size of the Gowanus rezoning, got all the news because that was the place of tension Um, And the Gowanus rezoning kind of sailed through the committee with a unanimous vote and much less attention. And yes, it took some years to do that work on the ground, but boy, if the result is that you could get folks in Park Slope and Carroll Gardens and Gowanus to say, We are supporting over 8,000 new units of housing, 3,000 of them affordable, uh, because we believe it's been done in a way that is fair, is gonna make our neighborhood more equitable and inclusive, does include those resources for our public housing neighbors, is thoughtful on climate infrastructure and resilience and the infrastructure needed to sustain growth. That is just a great story for New York City. Um, you know, one data point from our, the survey we did um, that's coming out soon is that, you know, while people have a lot of anxieties about the city's future, they love their neighborhoods. So um, rather than starting from a place of, like, this is a war between, you know, Rebni and Nimbies, and we just have to be on the side of, like, the city's future, um, let's start from saying people love their neighborhoods with good reason What does it look like to set up a a set of obligations where we say we have some needs for this city going forward. We do need more housing, especially affordable and deeply affordable housing. We need the infrastructure investments to go along with it. And of course, people care about and love their neighborhoods the way they are and uh, aren't gonna have, you know, immediately jump to, sure, I'd like to see new development right next door at heights much taller than my home. What we did in Gowanus was took that seriously and we like went through a process where we started from goals, not from City Hall's proposal or a developer's proposal, but a set of goals that everyone in the community really did think made sense. We do need more and more affordable housing. We need the infrastructure to match it. We want to keep the mixed-use character that makes Gowanus a creative neighborhood. We want new open space that will make it a vibrant neighborhood. We are concerned about a whole set of climate and resiliency and environmental issues around this Superfund site, we got agreement on those principles, and then we were able to move forward to a a plan that I think most other places would have been seen strong opposition, and I really believe, and this is why I'm a big supporter of some form of comprehensive planning for our city, right now we have a system where the proposals are perceived to come from developers, or maybe from a priority from City Hall, and not only not from the community, but just not from a shared sense of what our city's long-term needs are. So that's where I'd like to see us start. The city council put out a pretty thoughtful proposal called Planning Together. We would take other ways of approaching it. Actually, Annie Levers, who's the main author of that proposal, is here. Um, We'd love your thoughts, but if we don't get a more strategic, citywide planning process, we're just gonna have more of the same of like grinding fights in every individual neighborhood with a lot of yelling and screaming. And that, I would say, like more blood center processes are not the right way. Uh, I'm tempted to make some bloody joke about the city. Um, um, Not the way forward. Projects like processes like Gowanus, uh, which will only come, I think, if we have an adopted city broader uh, broader program. So, so
0: one of the things we had proposed in our housing uh, production report by Sean Campion was plan for growth, zone for growth. So, if there was a citywide plan for housing and jobs, and, and some and a proposal fit within that, do you think that we should process structural process changes that would give that more as of right movement rather than bog down? Because Guanis was painful, expensive, but it, still an aberration. Because a lot of things have been stopped. It's actually the success story with all the pain. Um, so the question is,
2: I, I just is there something- painful
1: and expensive? We had a lot of fun. Uh, it was the most inclusive community planning process I've ever seen. Sure, there's debate, but the, I don't know that okay, there was okay. I was I was, And I don't I, think I, it I actually cost that by the, you know, if you compare it to the infrastructure investments, I don't think it was no. that expensive. Well, I, I, and I, was, um, I will say that... But yes, the short answer to your question is yes. Uh, the, the proposal the council put forward would not require... Uh, charter amendments, so it doesn't adjust the Euler process, but it finds some other tools for enabling processes, uh, projects that would be aligned with that plan to sail more smoothly through. I'd personally be open to charter amendments that actually Um, amended the Euler process so that once we go through that planning process and say, this is an area where we think it makes sense, where we can sustain growth, where it's supported by infrastructure or adjacent infrastructure uh, investments. Here's the framework for affordability and other guidelines. And if your project meets those goals, then yes, maybe it goes through a process that's something more like the call-up process the city uses um, than, like, the existing Euler process, absolutely, but it's going to have to be built on a foundation that involves uh, more of a shared planning process than exists today, and that will take a little time. I think it'll pay off in the fact that the projects can can move forward more quickly. Um, I want to respond quickly to your property tax conversation because this is something I really want to work together with you guys on next year. Um, As many of you know, our biggest property tax break is up uh, for expiration in the spring. That's the 421A property tax break, which is now almost $2 billion a year for honestly glancingly little affordable housing more than what otherwise have been required by MIH. I would just say to you it cannot, in my opinion, be meaningfully defended as an affordable housing program. It does solve a problem, which is the lack of predictability in our property tax system for future development, but then let's fix our property tax system. So I would say, this is my proposal to you, let's let 421A sunset uh, this spring. Um, and rather than trying to replace it with a slightly less bad, clunky Rube Goldberg 421 a system, let's lean really hard together into comprehensive property tax reform. We'll have a newly elected governor you know, after next year or re-elected governor. I think there'll be a chance for the kind of governor-mayor partnership or at least non-toxic hostility uh, that will be necessary to move property tax reform forward. Um, and, you know, that won't, mean, that won't be in this session this year, but let's imagine uh, a 2023 session where we really work hard to get that done. That is, as you said, a kind of once-in-a-generation opportunity to fix something we all know is broken.
0: Depending on the parameters, I understand what you say and, and why it could work out if the tax rates were low enough to make it affordable. The challenge, of course, and the fear is that Without a son of 421A, which is actually, we know, the son of 421A, the one we're dealing with on Affordable New York now. But This with, is, a, I think,
1: the grandchild. With, without, with, great with,
0: grand without um, thank you. That's actually right, and I shouldn't be uh, gender specific. Um, <laughs> but I, 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 the concern is that you, you don't come back to that. Property tax reform hasn't happened. We might have a, a replay of, of the Dinkins' last day of the administration report coming out, and I think it will probably be a really good report, but how that momentum happens, if you let 421A sunset, there is concern, and you don't have property tax reform that's as deep as, as you would maybe hope and make it affordable, there's concern that we won't, we'll actually build less affordable housing and frankly, build less housing overall, which is necessary throughout the city to um, help, the, help the market generally. So that's the concern. Do you, I mean, the city's MIH study said that wouldn't happen except for our neighborhood and parks up in Park Slope and a couple of places in Manhattan. We couldn't have that mixed income development without it.
1: So first I'd say, uh, if last time was any guide, and I've actually already talked to enough developers to be pretty sure it is, the volume of footings uh, that are going to be put in the ground and 421A benefits that are going to be claimed in the run-up to expiration is honestly probably like a three-year lag of projects. I was talking to a developer who's proposing a rezoning over an MTA subway site, that project is gonna take a while. They have a plan to like get, you know, to enable it to have benefits under the current plan. So there's probably a three year overhang of projects that will get registered before the deadline. So let's just use that period of time. I mean, can we go forever? No, can we take a year? after four twenty one A expiration. So I'm happy to have a deadline. Like let's set a deadline. Like let's let property the four twenty one A expire this June and let's give so our a property tax reform, next it could re- June would you would deadline. you put in law
0: would you put in law that it re reenacts if there's not property tax reform by that time? we can have this conversation. Let's think about how we set
1: the cliff up that gives us that year to really give us a push to get broader property tax reform done. I would say this is not just about 421A. If you look across, I mean, of course, the nice thing about the way you'd want to finance affordable and mixed income housing is that it does fit with the broader principles of fairness you want for property tax in general, right? We treat it like it's crazily complicated, but the basic principle that you tax things at their value is a pretty good place to start here. Obviously, when you have market rate units, they should be paying their full tax rate, and when you have low income units, they should be not. You know, They should be taxed at the rate that they're delivering value. Obviously, it gets more complicated than that pretty quickly, um, but the system has gotten so far from that principle that like, starting over with that Both and how we're thinking about individual homes. Like, look, I live in a dramatically undertaxed row house in Park Slope, and I've had honest conversation with my neighbors about the fact that we have to have property tax reform and fairness, and we're lucky that our homes have appreciated in value. And, of course, that has to be reflected in our property tax system. And you can put circuit breakers in place or make some things happen on sale or defer things till sale, but we have to do that at the level... Um, And it's the same process that I think we ought to be able to put multifamily housing, a co-op and condo tax break. I was talking this morning about the ways that it's broken, 420, you know, so let's, let's, let's try, you know, I guess that's what I would say. Let's try.
0: We look forward to you using the powers of your office, which is always, always key. And we come back to is what as controller do you do and leverage those powers? um, Which is a, you know, different role and, and, and interesting uh, for everyone sitting in your seat and everyone pushing you to do X and Y like we are. Um, We consider ourselves focused on the powers of the office, but I understand the pressures. Why don't we open up for uh, questions from uh, people who've joined us today. Um, Any questions, raise your hand. We have some mics. I think Sean, is there someone else with a mic? Oh, there we go, Patrick. um, Anybody have any questions they want to ask?
1: I'm Judy wessler Chamelist, CBC trustee, and thank you so much for all of your comments. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for coming to our breakfast so my question is about the pensions um, you've talked about making uh, more economically targeted investments so I'd like to hear your overall philosophy on on impact on ESG how you balance the needs of 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 the economically targeted investments with the you know with the needs of generating a return and generating sufficient dollars absolutely a great question i'll note because we're here at the yale club that i had a conversation maybe two weeks ago with the uh, the yale university chief investment officer uh, a guy named matt mendelson who like me is actually uh, hails from st louis Um, uh, it's you know what we call the yale model is the way that institutional pension funds think broadly about how to invest across asset classes in a way that are thoughtful to protect the institution um, and guarantee the the beneficiaries their retirement security. So I'm spending, this is, you know, uh, Bill talked about the learning I'm doing. Um, I really have been like digging in on every piece of the office from claims to, um, so um, look, responsible fiduciary investing um, has a pretty clear set of obligations, like it is the obligation of the all of the, of the fiduciaries on the pension fund and the, the controller hires the CIO and oversees the bureau of asset management, but is also one of the 57 trustees across the five funds, and we could talk about the structural issues um, and whether there should be a look at governance over the long term, which I think there, sh- there should. Um, to guarantee prudent investments that uh, bring the returns that, that those funds need. And that is clear goal one. Um, at the same time, what you are doing as a fiduciary is looking at a broad set of risks in your asset classes, in your individual investments, but systemically as well. When you're an investor like the city and you've got you know, now um, you know, over $250 billion invested and you're broadly across the marketplace... Systemic risks are what are affecting you as much as the difference between you know company A or company B and sector A or sector B. That's why Jamie Dimon says inequality is a systemic risk to the American economy and therefore to portfolios that are spread across it. And it's why attention to the climate crisis is necessary for every portfolio that is that big. That is just a part of what it means to do responsible fiduciary investing, is to be eyes open to those risks and think about how to address them. What I'd like to do, and I put this in a, out in a plan um, in the campaign, and we'll update it for the office, is to get more strategic about the city's ESG approach. What tends to happen now is it's in very different parts of the Bureau of Asset Management, so the folks doing shareholder resolutions and corporate responsibility are over here, the folks doing those economically targeted or proactive investments are in a totally different place in the office, um, the folks trying to fo- working to follow through on the commitment to divest fossil fuels and invest more significantly in renewables someplace totally different. And the folks working hard to make sure our asset managers reflect the diversity of our city and get more black and brown asset managers in a fourth place, even though those are all parts of a ESG strategy and what that means is you often have it 's too reactive you know a new group of activists will come and kind of approach the controller and say, "You know we have this big concern we're whatever right now in my own district there's a um, a set of a private equity investor who's uh, evicting hundreds and hundreds of tenants from their homes in Brooklyn. Uh, And there's some questions about where that uh, those investment monies are coming from. Um, Good questions, but just a little too much like going and tapping the CIO on the shoulder and saying this week. Uh, And what I'd like to have is a more proactive and strategic planning process. Let's bring those different parts of ESG work together. Um, and let's have a little more transparent and strategic planning process where we talk about what we think the risks are. Obviously the trustees have to guide this process and of course the cops and the firefighters look at these questions differently than teachers and nurses do, and that's appropriate. It's their fund, it's a, that's how the portfolio works. So that's what I wanna do, is get a little more strategic, bring those things together, do it transparently. That doesn't resolve the tensions we're talking about, but they're appropriate. You know, that's the right conversation to have, is to like put our values out, be clear about what we think Um, It means to be a responsible fiduciary at this moment in time, move through that process together, make a set of decisions and guidelines, update investor policy statements for each of the five funds, and then let the investment teams go do their work so they can find the best investments at the best returns within those parameters. Um, Allaire.
2: Thanks. Uh, Mr. Lander, thank you very much. If I could just take one moment and reflect on last week's passing, of Ed Sadowski. Mr. Sadowski was chairman of the finance committee when I was budget director and I have endless respect and admiration for his brains, his courage, and I think all New Yorkers owe him a debt of gratitude. One of the powers of the mayor that is not often remarked upon, but is very important, is that he sets revenues. The council can't just say, no, no, there's going to be 200 million more in PIT. That's the mayor. And for the most part in modern history, what that has meant is uh, from the budget office, there is a tendency to be very conservative with estimating revenues so that most, for the most part, uh, revenue surprises are good surprises and not bad surprises. And there's something in the till for when something goes wrong because something always does. Um, and, and that serves us well, I think. The problem comes with big dollops of federal money like we just got Um, and where the distribution over fiscal years is also left to the mayor. And in this instance, this year, that has meant, I think, a total abdication of responsibility and fiscal good sense. Uh, It has meant that we've said, well, let's spend it all now. Why uh, take pain today when those others down the road can take it? and I don't remember a huge outcry from other elected officials about how bad this was. Perhaps I was not listening carefully enough, but I'm wondering what the role of the controller should be in matters such as that, and whether there are any rules that make sense to impose. I can't think of any rule that, that would work across the board. So I'm curious about how you think that was handled.
1: Uh, thank you, Alaire. Congrats on the well-deserved Felix Roatan Award. Thank you for evoking Ed's memory. I talked a couple with uh, uh, with a couple of you this morning about uh, our dear friend Herb Sturz, whose uh, you know memory we recently we we recently had his memorial as well. Um, your points are all good, and I really agree with them. I actually voted no on the budget in June, citing this exact question. Uh, I introduced legislation to require transparent tracking of American Rescue Plan and federal COVID dollars. Um, when you run against a speaker, it's harder to get your legislation passed. So that bill did not has not passed yet. But um, so we we really need it. I mean, what will I do as controller? Is sort of what I said before with Andrew. Like we're going to make it a first hundred days task to dig in on transparency around the spending of the broad set of COVID federal resources, especially the American Rescue Plan funding, which is the most discretionary. A lot of the earlier money was essentially reimbursements for direct COVID expenses, but the ARP money is $7 billion to DOE for schools with very broad, you know, um, and I think pretty little clarity about what's been spent, what's left, what was just uh, replaced revenues, what's recurring and what's one time and then another just shy of $6 billion to the city. And some of those things I think make sense. You know, the the civilian cleanup corps, the New York City cleanup corps, like we're rightly concerned right now that like trash is out of control and that is having public health consequences. But it isn't being spent in a – I haven't seen a clear tracking system for like how that's being managed, where it's being deployed, how we know what its outcomes are. So there's some – management questions, like what outcomes are we getting that for that funding? And then there's a set of fiscal questions about what has and hasn't been spent, what's against recurring versus one-time obligations. Um, so we're going to work really hard together to make sure we present that information as quickly and clearly as possible for the mayor and the council to use. Um, yeah, in terms of either rules or legislation or guardrails, I think that I'm glad to think about what it would look like For the moment, I think the best we can all do together is provide the information clearly, make sure we show what's at stake, talk a lot with the mayor and the new council about it. Um, You know, I do think, you know, that is an issue of fiscal prudence, but it is also an issue of like thoughtful long term spending. Like, uh, you know, uh, we need that rainy day fund. But let's be clear, on a, we're going to need the rainy day fund in the next recession. On a rainy day right now, what we need is better sewer infrastructure. So like, that's a good one-time <laughs> expenditure. Um, and uh, there are investment choices to make. It's not only how do we make sure we, we live within our means, which is critical. It's how do we make the best use of these one-time federal resources we have for the long-term challenges that we face.
0: And we're out of time. If someone has a quick, quick question,
3: um, we'll do. Hi, I'm Sarah Churchwell and I'm a CBC trustee. Um, I just wanted to highlight really quickly, um, as kind of a follow on issue to the pension investing, that um, the pension investing program at the city of New York, I've worked on uh, Wall Street and distressed finance for 30 years. And um, there's supposedly this MWBE program, right? Um, but what the um, allocators within the city of New York have historically done um, to meet those mandates is they've allocated money to either people of color or women within the larger asset managers, which in within the Black Rocks, Blackstones. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, as opposed to actually targeting the money towards people who are, you know, leaving Goldman Sachs or leaving, you know, Paulson or leaving Centerbridge or leaving, you know, one of these firms and are um, and need a leg, need an honest God leg up.
1: Uh, I'd love to talk more about this. It's when I mentioned that idea of a strategic planning process around our ESG work and very clearly oh. included asset manager diversity. Uh, in the conversation, I don't see that as like separate from uh, ESG. There are so many good managers. There are challenges for our pension funds because uh, there's this rule, state law called the basket clause, which restricts three quarters of the city's investments basically to, um, to public equities um, and fixed income. And in that, that means for 75% of the portfolio, the size of the investor, you know, and therefore ability to, to um, keep fees low is a big advantage. So a lot of the MWBE work has been pushed to the quarter of the portfolio where alternatives and private equity and infrastructure um, and active management are what guides. And therefore, it's like a lot to try to get all of your diversity out of a quarter of your portfolio, uh, but I'd love to talk more about what you think we could do about it. I think it is a real problem that we need to solve. Um, you know, broadly across, there was a report that the controller's office recently put out that less than 4% of city contracting is going to MWPEs. It's a little better than that uh, in the controller's asset management portfolio, but not, not nearly enough. Is that
3: there's too much weight given uh, to past performance, because most people who leave the um, the most prestigious um, either hedge funds or private equity funds um, located in the city are not allowed to leave with their track record, right? So, so if you're putting all that weight on past performance as opposed to just saying, okay, you know, look, they clearly have, you know, a, a nice stamp of, of approval if they were sitting, you know, within, um, I don't know. Um, Centerbridge, for instance of Cerberus, for you know 20
1: years let's Uh, talk more about it obviously you got to have something to base those decisions on so they're fair and transparent but i think the opportunities to make sure we're helping uh emerging managers women people of color is absolutely critical so really look uh, forward to working with you both collectively but individually as well thank you so so much great to see y'all
0: thanks